Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation about science and technology. On today's show... Manufacturers are giving cars more oomph. The benefits could be manifold. Because if you're using an electric motor for part of the acceleration, then you obviously reduce fuel consumption. Reducing fuel consumption reduces emissions. More about that later in the show. We'll also discuss the dark history of lobotomies and how one operation which went horribly wrong ended up revolutionising the way that scientists understand memory. Some of the fundamental things that we know about how memory works came from the, the half century that Henry was studied. That was Luke Dittrich, who has a new book out. It tells the story of Henry Malaysen, the most famous lobotomy patient in history. But first, do you have trouble resisting temptation as the day goes on? Or do you have unlimited willpower when it comes to the last piece of chocolate? A new study now challenges hundreds of previous studies that concluded that self-control is a finite resource. With me to unpick this story is Matt Kaplan, our science correspondent. Hello, Matt. Hiya, Tom. So where does this story begin? We've got all of these papers that have been published over the years which demonstrate that if you give someone an activity to engage in that involves having to involve willpower and you give them a second activity later on after they've exerted a lot of willpower, they have more difficulty with the second willpower task. And that's led to a lot of folks to say, okay, well, willpower is a depleting resource. You only have so much in a day. But a team of researchers was looking at the overall numbers, sort of a metadata study, trying to to come to grips with all of these findings. And when they looked at the statistics, they realized that the numbers weren't as robust as they had thought. There are a lot of problems with these studies, which suggest that they're they're too small to be yielding the kinds of findings that people were, were drawing conclusions from. So having found that these previous studies were not as rock solid as they appeared to be, what did the researchers do next? Because the previous studies had had small sample sizes and that a lot of conclusions had been drawn from those, Martin Hager at Curtin University in Australia said, OK, right, what we need here, folks, is an alliance of laboratories that can run lots and lots of participants through willpower tests to see if the numbers actually add up. So he got 23 labs all over the world to run between 90 and 120 participants through the same kind of willpower test that had been run traditionally in smaller labs. And then they looked at the numbers from those. And what did they find? It's shocking, actually, Tom, because the, all these smaller studies were getting delays of a quarter second to a third of a second uh, during the second test. After someone's had their willpower, de- willpower depleted, they had more difficulty engaging in a willpower exercise later. But this study, when they looked at all the numbers together, that kind of got rubbished. All you got was a delay of 0.04 seconds in the second group of people. And because the numbers are so robust, that raises huge questions about all of those, you know, we're talking about over 200 previous studies that had said, well, willpower is a finite resource. So it came to the opposite conclusion. Why should we trust this study more than the previous ones? Because lots of small studies are not the same 
as one really big study. One really big study gives you the kind of numerical power, statistical power, that is very difficult to argue with. Whereas lots of small studies can, because they're dealing with small numbers, be quite biased and their numbers can be quite misleading. So this study is good news in a sense because it shows that we have more self-control than psychologists have previously deemed us to have. But it, at the same time, it's, um, it's bad news. It's not exactly a, a ringing endorsement for the way that psychology has been uh, conducted over the past few years. Actually, I disagree completely. Okay, okay, yeah, it's nice that we have more self-control than we thought we did. It's wonderful that I you know, now can resist that piece of chocolate cake at the end of the day when I previously thought that I might not be able to because of previous research. But actually, what I think is really awesome here is in 2015, there was a, a study that was conducted, I think it was at a University of Virginia, where a, a team of scientists looked at 100 top psychology studies and found that only 39% of them were repeatable. That was, that was serious, a serious find. And the fact that this kind of self-testing, self-policing in the psychological environment by scientists is happening again is fantastic. It shows that psychology is really serious about policing itself and looking after the numbers. So the fact that 23 labs were willing to step in and do this repeatable stuff, which is frankly grunt work that doesn't give you any sort of uh, of gravitas in the psychological community is wonderful. It, it's really encouraging. Well, Oscar Wilde said, I can resist everything except temptation. Thank you very much for joining us, Matt. My pleasure, Tom. Please don't show self-control when following us on Twitter or liking us on Facebook. You can find us at Economist Radio or you can send us an email at radio at economist.com. On last week's show, Richard Rangham of Harvard University spoke about how men get more touchy-feely with each other after competitive sports compared with women. This story generated a lot of comments on our social media channels. Miles Main was less impressed with our coverage, commenting on Facebook, The length of a handshake shared between a few players does not define the ability of an entire gender to mitigate conflict. And since when was a soccer game considered conflict? This article is poorly titled and misleading. You should know better, economist. Well, there's obviously someone I'm going to have to find and shake his hand to uh, mitigate the conflict there. But uh, let us know what you think. And thank you for your comments on last week's show. Next, the story of the lobotomy patient known as HM is tragic. But his loss was a huge gain for science. Following his operation, HM lost the ability to create new memories. This kick-started a whole branch of scientific research into how memory works. His loss was, in a, in a literal sense, our gain. That was Luke Dittrich, author and grandson of the neurosurgeon who operated on HM. Mr Dittrich has recently published a book on the subject. Before HM became patient HM, he was Henry Melaison. As a child, he hit his head severely. The trauma caused him to develop epilepsy. By the time he was 27 years old, he and his family, his, his mom and dad, were in sort of desperate situation and desperate for any any help they could find sort of anywhere for for his condition and they turned to my grandfather who was a neurosurgeon by all accounts sort of a, a brilliant technically skilled neurosurgeon but he also straddled this kind of interesting divide between medical practice and medical research and he offered Henry's family an experimental brain operation uh, he told them that he thought that by removing some certain sort of deep-seated structures in Henry brain, he might alleviate Henry's epilepsy. And they, in their desperation, said, uh, said okay. And, and my grandfather operated on Henry. And um, although the operation ultimately didn't 
cure his epilepsy, it did have one immediate and unintended consequence. It destroyed Henry's ability to create new memories. For the rest of his life, 55 years, he was profoundly amnesic. He lived his life in more or less 30-second increments. The present would just sort of constantly slide off of him. This was obviously a terrible outcome for, for Henry. But for science, it was a revelation. A lot of what we know, sort of some of the fundamental things that we know about how memory works, uh, came from the the half-century that Henry was studied. So what did the author's grandfather, William Scoville, actually do to Henry? He removed structures from within a region of the brain known as the medial temporal lobes. He removed most of Henry's hippocampus, his amygdala, his entorhinal cortex, and his uncus. And the, the important thing to understand is that at the time, nobody really knew what these structures did. And so my grandfather went in and, and he removed them bilaterally from both hemispheres of the brain. It instantly became clear that without these structures, uh, it is impossible to form new memories. Henry's brain never recovered from the operation, but the study of memory took flight. So what do we learn from Henry's maimed brain? The first fundamental thing that research conducted on patient HM on Henry taught us was that without these specific structures in the medial temporal lobes, you are unable to create new memories. And that was, it's sort of a a simple conclusion, but it was a revolutionary one. The second and, and in some ways even more sort of fundamental discovery that experimentation with Henry led to was the idea that there are at least two separate and at least somewhat distinct memory systems in the brain. Although Henry could not create new memories, new sort of episodic memories, that the events of his life would just sort of you know, fall into an abyss, he could learn new skills. He could learn to complete new sorts of tasks, and he would get better at them over time, even though he didn't remember actually ever having performed them before, which indicated that there are these distinct structures in the brain that support that type of learning, that type of memory. Those are two of the cornerstones of modern memory science, and they came about directly through, through work that was uh, conducted with patient HM. Even though Henry would not remember performing a task, he would become better at doing it with practice. To remember something, it seems that you don't need to consciously remember how to do it. Your brain will remember it by itself. For Luke Dittrich, this is not only a story of how neuroscience evolved into what it is today, it's part of his family history too. My grandmother's mental illness ends up playing a big part in the, in the book. My grandfather, who before he operated on Henry, he had already established himself as one of the more prolific lobotomists in history. But his passion for the lobotomy was driven by a very kind of personal quest to develop a surgical cure for mental illness so that he could, you know, quote unquote, fix his own wife. Um, who was institutionalised in in, uh, one of the same asylums that he operated in. That was Luke Dittrich talking about his new book, Patient HM, A Story of Memory, Madness and Family Secrets. Next, carmakers are upping the voltage of cars' electrical systems. That allows engineers to boost engine output and efficiency. It could cut the cost of cars and have environmental benefits too. With me to get us up to speed on this story is Paul Markilly, our innovation editor and one of our resident petrol heads. Paul, what's the advantage of raising the voltage of a car's electrical system? Voltage is to electricity a bit like pressure is to water. The more you have of it, the more oomph you get, the more 
power you can actually deliver. Now, the electrical systems of cars have been increasing gradually. In the 1950s, we switched from 6 volts to 12 volts because we had bigger, more high-compression engines to turn over with the starter motor. Now we have electric motors in all sorts of things and so many electric devices in cars. I mean, a, a modern car could have 150 electric motors of all various sorts in it. So the, if you like, the, the demand for power has increased so greatly, we need to deliver that power more efficiently. Well, I can imagine that you know, cars are computers on wheels these days, but what does it allow you to do as far as the engine's concerned? Well, you can deliver more power with 48 volts. You can then have bits of that car that run on 48 volts, which wouldn't run quite so well on 12. Now, one example is to have uh, a a turbine or a, a sort of supercharger, if you like, which works instead of a turbocharger, which is driven off the exhaust gases. But an electrically driven turbine can pump the air into the engine faster and more react much more quickly than a, a turbocharger so you can get a huge increase in performance now this isn't just for sports cars and people like you who want to go really fast the point is that you can then have a smaller engine and you can have it act like a bigger engine when you need it to just by giving it a boost is that the idea absolutely because another thing you can do is we're seeing on many cars now we have stop start systems now you need a good starter motor to start the car instantly because you don't want to be sitting at the traffic lights and Lights change and you put your foot down, it takes a while to start the car. So you need a a very quick starter. Now, a 48-volt starter will start very quickly. But that can be, and it is in an experimental Ford uh, Focus, which is uh, currently being tested, is that uh, you can use that starter also as a generator. It becomes a combined unit. So it helps you, comes on, starts the car very quickly, but also it acts as a generator so when you brake hard it will generate electricity but then you can use the electricity that that generates stored in a battery to actually run as an electric motor so it will help your acceleration so what you suddenly have there is a 48 volt hybrid and one that can be built much more efficiently than you could with a a modern full hybrid, which would have a stonking great lithium-ion battery pack in it. Now, you wouldn't need that for this kind of vehicle. That all sounds very cool. What's the impact on the emissions of the vehicle then? Presumably it's quite positive. It is, because if you're using an electric motor for part of the acceleration, then you obviously reduce fuel consumption. Reducing fuel consumption reduces emissions. But more specifically, you can do that at very critical times of the combustion, and that helps helps cut, in particular, something called NOx, which is a a nasty uh, gas which is produced during combustion that is of increasing concern to regulators. So you get more of that when you're accelerating hard, and if you can unload some of the effort, as it were, onto a motor, then you get fewer of those nasty gases when you're pulling away from the lights. That's so, and particularly in diesel vehicles, and diesel vehicles, although they are low on CO2, they can be particularly high on NOx. Well, this all sounds great. What's it going to cost, though? How much is this going to add to the cost of a typical vehicle? These technologies could be relatively cheap. I mean, the general view in the industry is that using 48-volt systems, you can get something called a mild hybrid. So that's a vehicle that delivers uh, what is thought to be something like 70% of the benefits of a full hybrid car, but for only around 30% of the cost. So we're talking there of only a few hundred dollars in mass production terms, which is why some 
some uh, car makers think that uh, by 2025, one in uh, every 10 car being sold will be a mild hybrid. There will, of course, be other electric cars and full hybrids, but these cheap little mild hybrids will be making a significant contribution to fuel saving and emissions reduction. And presumably you could also use slightly smaller engines, which would uh, give you a cost saving to offset against the extra cost of this equipment. Indeed, because you, or we've already seen engines coming down in size, but you could probably get a, a one litre engine now to do what a uh, currently a 1.5 litre engine, and that saves weight, that saves fuel. So a big question then, Paul, are you going to buy a car that works this way? Nothing less than a V8 will suit me. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. You can read more about these stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.